Amela Anna Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Images make websites rich and engaging. They are the biggest asset on a website. Because of this, they can be the main thing that's affecting web performance. Yuna Kravitz, senior UI engineer at DigitalOcean, explains how and why we should optimize images. We talked about several performance improvements and accessibility on the web. Yuna is also co-host of Tools Day, a weekly podcast about tech tools, tips and tricks on Tuesdays at 2, so check it out. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Yuna Kravitz, Senior UI Engineer at DigitalOcean, is joining us today. Yuna, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you so much for having me. Hello. It's great to have you. And I saw that your work spans from many different categories, from front-end development and web development. One specific area that I saw you work on is accessibility and performance. So I want to start first by understanding What does accessibility mean for websites? Oh, accessibility is can your users access your data? And that spans from all types of users, everything from people with vision impairments who are using screen readers to read information to them, people with other types of disabilities who need to use the keyboard to navigate. There's a big span here. Even people who are colorblind, can they see differences in your UI based on just the colors you put in there? So accessibility to me really is about all of those people, but also primarily about data. It's about making your information key because that's why people access the web. So in this last part that you mentioned about the data, would this also encompass having your website available in different languages? Yeah, I think that's a big one. Actually, one of the first talks that I ever gave, I was a student in college still, and it was at a Ruby conference. I gave a talk about internationalization and how important that is because I'm Ukrainian and I've experienced my grandparents just trying to play like Candy Crush on an iPad and all of the images had the embedded text in them so you couldn't translate that and it just killed me. So I started doing a bunch of research on internationalization and how you can make the web accessible for people cross-culturally and that's another thing that people don't really think about but as long as you're sending your content in a way that's accessible for most people like including people who use screen readers etc that makes it a lot easier for people who are also needing to translate your website into other languages too. And the images thing that you just brought up is this because a person creates the image on Photoshop and the image happens to have a text and then when they're translating they forget to create multiple images for multiple languages? Yeah, I mean they don't create multiple images usually. Okay, yeah, that's true. <laughs> is there is there a way to fix this? Is it just saving multiple versions or can the text be outside of the image or something? Yeah, the text should always be outside the image. You should always be sending text as text, never in an image itself. Even if you have alt tags, it's still like when we're talking about internationalization, it's going to make it really hard for someone to understand and translate. But um, now with all the CSS tooling that we have that 
really lets you be creative on the web, you don't need Photoshop to create beautiful like uh, compositions. You can just do that in the browser, which is great for all the things that we mentioned before. And um, that way you can just serve content in the way that's intended to be read. And that's also good for SEO. It's good for a variety of things. And how can we evaluate if our website is accessible? There are a set of tools or steps that you normally follow for this? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, there are some really great plugins and Chrome extensions. Uh, the first one is called Axe, and Marcy Sutton works on it and her team at DEC. And um, that's a tool that I use really often. It's just a Chrome extension that I use to analyze websites. There's also uh, the Wave Static Site Analyzer, and um, it's by WebAIM. So you can get that wave extension, and it'll also analyze your websites for color contrast, for um, ARIA labels, making sure that all of your markup is semantic and marked up in the right spaces. It really does analyze a variety of static means. Now, I will say the hard part about accessibility is figuring out how to make interactions accessible. So like when you click open a modal, are you um, capturing focus on the modal? Can you get out of that screen with the escape key? These are all parts of the WCAG spec that people don't usually realize because they can't get that kind of interactive testing from some of these static plugins. But the plugins are great. It just also takes a little bit of testing on top of that. And does the keyboard one that you just mentioned involve making your website able to be navigated just via the keyboard instead of with a mouse? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And we were talking earlier about images. And one aspect that you've also focused on is image optimization. And images are the biggest asset on a website. In what ways can images affect the performance of our websites? Oh, yeah. So absolutely. Images are the majority of what we're sending online, which makes sense. It's the media that we're sending to our users. But there are a lot of ways that we can improve that. So the way that images, to answer your question, do affect performance is they could really take up a lot of loading time and memory data from your user. They can drain your user's battery if you're sending a lot of content to them and really create this janky experience for users. That's really not great for any user, but especially users who don't have really fast phone plans or access to good Wi-Fi. They're just going to be waiting there for your page to load, and it takes a long time. Sometimes people are sending just these massive images. If you take an image on your iPhone, It's like 2.6 megabytes on average. That's the average size. And that's like way bigger than the recommended initial load time for a website, which is less than one megabyte. Mm -hmm. So people don't realize that they're sending just massive amounts of data to users all the time. This is a problem, I think, on the web. What are some of the ways that you've used to identify these problems and try to come up with a better way of serving images? There's a lot of optimization tools out there that you can use. One of my favorite is Image Optum. You can just drag and drop your entire images folder into Image Optum and just watch the savings in image size trickle down. There are also a lot of dev environment plugins. So if you're using Webpack or if you're using Gulp, anything, you can use um, Image Magic plugins and make automatic optimizations for your images. There's also a lot of 
other things that you can do in terms of responsive images, um, not sending your users on mobile the same massive images that you're sending for users with bigger screen sizes. That's a really important one. Making sure that you're sending sizes of images that fit the shape that you're going to be presenting them in. That could save a lot of data for your users. If you do want to send bigger images or retina images, you can use things like the picture element to send different types of media based on some queries that you can make on the browser itself. You can use server-side rendering, do some tests on your, you know, on your uh, user's browser and then make decisions on what you're sending. You can change the format of your images, maybe use WebP. You should definitely be using WebM for video. There's a lot of tools and like little tips and tricks that you can do to really reduce image size and be able to send that really high quality content, but not make it take up a lot of your user's data plan. One of the things that you just mentioned is do server-side rendering to decide what you're gonna serve to the user. Does this involve using a headless browser or what is this? Well, you can set up your server configuration, like your Nginx file, to, based on the headers that you're sending to the server, decide what images they're going to send. Um, WebP is a good example of this. If your browser supports WebP, then that's what you're going to get. And that can save you up to 30% per image. If you're using Internet Explorer, then you get JPEGs. And that's fine. Um, that's just kind of how you're going to be sent images down the pipeline. Um, so you can do this by yourself. You can set up the server yourself and write all those configurations. Or you can use a service. There's a really good CDN service called Cloudinary that does this for you. And that's a really good one. They do a ton of optimizations. They also do a thing where they send multiple images per uh, device size. So um, there's a lot that you can do manually, but then there's also some great tools out there for people to use that don't want to do it all manually. Okay, I see. And I want to talk a little more about this area of images we see there are many different image formats and then there's new ones coming up. How do you go about deciding which format is better for your website? Well, that depends on the image itself. So it's a good thing to know about how different formats compress and store image data. So um, with SVG, for example, SVG is a vector format. If you have any kind of logos or flat graphics, which is really trendy these days, um, SVG is a great choice because it's going to be presenting a really small file size. And then you can do further optimizations to remove some of the path elements and to remove all the comments in there and provide a really small file size. Um, with PNG, it also works really well with images that have large areas of similar color blocks. So that format will always be smaller for cartoons than a JPEG will, a flat cartoon. If you have a lot of gradation in your images and a lot of transitions in lots of colors, JPEG is usually much smaller for the same images. And that's because the way that it compresses is through this lossy format. It's going to get rid of image data based on this series of algorithms, uh, whereas PNG is lossless. So um, if you have a lot of areas of similar color, it's just going to compress those and give it sort of like a numeric format for the browser to read that from. Mm -hmm. It sounds really complicated when you speak it out loud, but if you like look yeah. <laughs> at a diagram, it makes sense really for those two. Okay. So you would be looking at this diagram that walks you through, is your image just two colors, use this, is it a cartoon, use a PNG. So something like this is what you're describing? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you understand how 
like the images compress, you might not need that. But also Sarah Drasner did a really cool SVG based decision chart that does just that, like what image format you should use, but it's on CodePen. It's pretty cool. And videos are have exploded in popularity as well as GIFs. Yeah. Especially GIFs. I see GIFs all the time everywhere. How do these impact performance? Yeah, so GIFs are the worst. <laughs> really? <laughs> GIFs are really bad for image performance because if you think about it, you're storing X amount of images in one GIF. So yeah. they become massive. Videos work like an algorithm where like you have to render it ahead of time, but it's much, much smaller. Whereas GIFs are kind of like a lookup table where you have to eat, like store every single frame. With videos, yeah, there's no comparison. They're so much smaller than GIFs. If you can send videos, do it. Um, also, since iOS 10, mm -hmm. like a few versions ago, you can get auto-playing videos to play on your phone if they're in silent. So that's really great because you can like have videos playing like GIFs, like have them feel like GIFs, but they're much smaller, not taking up as much data, <laughs> like memory intensive yeah. as the GIFs. And WebM is a really good format too. Like WebM is pretty well supported. And also with the video format, the video element, you can send multiple sources and um, your browser will just choose a source that it supports. You don't need a polyfill. It's just how the video element works. And at this point, is there anything at all we can do with GIFs or is the only alternative right now what you just recommended of using videos instead? Well, there's no, there's, there's no thing that will make the image size smaller, yeah. like using a video instead of a GIF. But you could go into the GIF, edit some of the colors out. So like in Photoshop, you can do selective color editing to reduce number of colors. You could remove some of the frames. You can actually open GIFs in preview or in like Photoshop and delete some of the frames in there. So there's fewer images being sent and make some of the other frames last longer. You can actually change the duration of every single frame on a GIF individually. So you could totally play around with it. But if you really want to be performant, don't send GIFs. Yeah, they're fun to watch, but they have a big impact on performance. Definitely. You're a senior UI engineer at DigitalOcean. I've talked to several people that have used DigitalOcean. I have not used it myself, but I have read the awesome documentation they have. And they're known for this cloud infrastructure provider that works really well, but it also comes with a very beautiful and intuitive UI. And I saw that when you started working here last year, you were evaluating and finding performance issues. What are the things that you immediately look for when you are thinking of this task? Well, the first thing is to run through some audits. So there's some really good built-in audits in Chrome. And now there's a great tool called Lighthouse that does a lot of a combination of different things. It looks at um, how your app kind of works on mobile and it works. It looks at like the speed of your app and all those things. Um, Web page test is a traditional tool that is really helpful. It shows you a full film strip of your page and it also gives you a video to see how it loads in like millisecond by millisecond. Um, always look for redundant resources that you're sending. Oh, there's just so many things that you can do to performance audit. Well, I guess the message here is you start by using these tools to get an idea of what it looks like. Yeah. 
Get a baseline. Yeah, versus from your head, from past experiences, you're not going to say, oh, let me look at the CSS if it's big. You would actually see this through the tools because they have visualizations that you can go by. Yeah, exactly. Like CSS stats is a really good tool for CSS. I use that one. And um, take a baseline. So make sure that you're keeping the information from before and so you can compare it to after and then show your progress. It's a really good way to um, kind of fight for the cause of performance internally. What was an example of something that you found at DigitalOcean? So right now I'm working on um, building a component library that's going to hopefully improve some of the CSS that's just built up over the past few years of different engineers working on our cloud application um, and really unify all of that. So I ran it through CSS Dig, which shows you really lengthy selectors. There's a lot of redundant code in there. It's just, it's really massive. In the past eight months, we introduced 134 kilobytes of CSS alone. And it's true that our product has expanded a lot in those eight months, but if you use a system like a component library, then it doesn't have to expand so much in the code that you're sending your user. So um, that's kind of the focus of what I'm working on now because there's just a lot of opportunity for improvement there. And I really like working with component libraries and design systems. By component library, do you mean something like Bootstrap? Yeah, exactly. It's like a customized Bootstrap for our product, which is growing more and more in popularity across teams, and I'm excited to see that. And as I was researching for this show, one of the things I saw in a presentation you gave is that at DigitalOcean, you saw this interactive image that was causing issues. And what you mentioned is that you opened it in Photoshop and you looked at the frames. Can you explain what you were trying to do by doing this? Yeah, so that was a big gif that was on our homepage. Okay. <laughs> and it was just a part of the design. So I was trying to get that homepage less than one megabyte in size, right, for my team. And so kind of like I was explaining before, you could open GIFs inside of Photoshop and look at all the frames individually and then remove redundant frames because it's going to save them out on a time basis. But if you have any frames where it's still, like you aren't moving, you can remove those, make the frames before them longer, and then also play with some of the colors. And I ended up getting that GIF, like 200 kilobytes or something smaller. So it was like 400 instead of 600 that we were sending, which um, ended up getting us to that goal of less than one megabyte for the initial load of the content. That was exciting. Nice. And you've been working on front-end infrastructure. What systems need to be in place to improve velocity and code quality? One that we talked about was this framework similar to Bootstrap. Is there anything else that should be a part of this infrastructure? Yeah, definitely. Performance monitoring is a really good tool to have. We never really got around to setting a performance budget for different teams, but it's definitely an idea that we floated around a lot. I set up a accessibility metrics dashboard called Pally internally, and uh, I have a blog post I wrote about how to set this up on DigitalOcean if you're interested in doing that. But Pally is a really cool tool where you can see all the accessibility errors, warnings, and notifications over time. So you could see if you've introduced accessibility bugs or if you've improved some and it kind of like brings it to your front of your mind so that you can go and fix accessibility errors throughout your site. Again, it is a static analysis tool, so it's not going to get everything, but um, it's good to have as part of 
your tool set as an internal infrastructure tool set, I guess. And is the images optimization part done once you're building the website or on the site you evaluate it once? Like, is this part of the continuous integration pipeline? Yeah, yeah. So it's part of our build process. We don't really have a lot of images actually on the sites that I've worked on, which is the cloud dashboard and the current digitalocean.com site, as well as Hacktoberfest. Oh, I want to talk about Hacktoberfest in a minute. But we have a lot of SVGs. So we do SVG optimization during our build step, which is through Gulp right now. Yeah, it's still using Gulp. So as a part of that, we have an SVG optimization step. So whenever we have assets in our like public folder, they're built into a minified version of themselves. And what was the thing you just mentioned you wanted to talk about? Hacktoberfest. Um, so it's currently Hacktoberfest, which is all throughout the month of October. And it's something that DigitalOcean puts on as kind of like our nod to open source. You can go to hacktoberfest.digitalocean.com and sign up. And then if you submit four pull requests in the month of October, we send you a t-shirt. That's simply it. It's just kind of to encourage more people to participate in open source. There's a few meetups going on. I'm looking at the site right now. There's one in Taiwan. There's one in New York. There's one in Berlin. And I know there's a few other ones that are shaping up right now. So I love it because I love seeing more people contributing to open source. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. And yes, I believe your love for open source because I saw you open source your goals. Can you (laughs) explain this a little bit for people that haven't seen this? Yeah. So I have this like public open source goal repository that I have been keeping up for exactly three years, three years in a week. And basically what I would do every week is I would write down my goals for the week. I would do a review of how I did on my goals. I would like every day, write down a happy moment also. That was like a separate thing I did in my repo. Um, Then just go through and check them throughout the week. And I had like a terminal alias I would go through and use to check my different goals. Like it was a whole process because I I lived in my computer, I lived in my terminal. Mm -hmm. And so I kept it all kind of out there in public. And nobody followed my open source goals for like two years. And then people started following them. And um, I just recently started moving that to a bullet journal and a little bit away from from GitHub. I thought it was a good push to start on GitHub, but now I feel like it's a little too many eyes on it. So, oh, really? so the other one is private, I guess. Yeah, it's it's kind of the same, but I also really miss drawing and being creative with my hands. Yeah. So um, the bullet journal kind of just lets me be a little bit more creative physically. I might go back to the open source goals. I I kind of took a pause on those. I think it's been a month since I did them online but there's three years of records in there of my career that's pretty awesome I really like that because people sometimes ask you like how did you get to where you are like how did you get so good at UI engineering and then you can just tell them well go to this repo I have there all my progress tracked and I don't know if I want them to see the repo (laughs) (laughs) like some of the happy moments are kind of embarrassing now oh okay well, what I meant, it would be a good way to look at somebody's career. Yeah, it's true. And I never really thought of it that way until this past year. It is kind of a good anthology of my career since IBM, now at DigitalOcean, kind of how I got here and the work that I put into it. It's just constant work. And it's, it's not always fun work. You just kind of have to do things and 
having this open source repo was really a way to keep myself accountable for that. And so I know that when I find myself not paying attention to the repo and kind of moving away from it, I don't do as much work. And I kind of slip from that. Mm -hmm. But um, it's a surefire way to get things done. Like having a to-do list, sticking to your to-do list, keeping your to-do list in front of you, wherever that front of you is. For me, it was my computer and my terminal at the time, which is why I did it online the way that I did. Um, It's really motivating. A lot of it in this industry is about networking and it's about luck in the right moment. But I love this quote by Thomas Jefferson. It just happens to be sitting in front of me at my desk right now. It says, I find the harder I work, the more luck I seem to have. And I feel like that's so true. It's not fun. It's a lot of hard work. And then you make cool things from it in the end that you're proud of. Yes, I actually read that quote last week because I have this app that gives you daily quotes. Oh, nice. Yeah, Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And one thing you just mentioned is right now you want to do things with your hands. You want to draw. I've been learning to draw for a year. Right now I've found myself just drawing about the impact of smartphones in our lives. So I'm curious, what sort of things are you drawing right now? That's very cool, first of all, um, that you're picking up drawing. Thank you. I am doing calligraphy. I really like calligraphy, and I like watercolors, and I like very dainty illustrations. I used to draw a lot. I graduated with a dual degree in graphic design and computer science, and in the design school, I did a lot of illustration. So I'm just kind of picking that up again. And calligraphy is pretty new to me, but I really love it. And I feel like it's just come so naturally. So now I've done like people's wedding invitations and it's just kind of snowballed. That's awesome. And do you prefer working on paper versus a tablet? Yeah, paper is just so much more tactile. I love it. I love having something to put up for sure. Yeah. And... In addition to this, you're also host of Tools Day, a weekly 20-minute podcast. Can you explain what this podcast is about? Yeah, so Tools Day kind of like has my heart. So Tools Day is a podcast about tech tools, tips, and tricks on Tuesdays at 2. That's kind of the spiel. But it's me and my co-host, Chris Donaraj, and um, we just talk about the latest in tech. And um, our latest series is called Cubs. Chris and Yuna build stuff where we have a week to like build stuff with technology that we never used before. Like Electron, we built Electron apps and uh, we built Slack bots. And um, I don't know, it's just really fun. We try to do it every single week, but you know, we both are busy and travel. So sometimes we skip weeks, mm-hmm. um, but it's been a really good way to kind of keep in touch with Chris, who I met at IBM. Uh, we worked together there and now I've moved away, but we still have this project that we work on together, and it's really nice. Yeah, that's pretty awesome, especially what you just mentioned the latest theme is, where you're building something every week with something that you haven't used before. So it's a good way to get you to use these tools, right? Yeah, like challenging your friends is fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And was the initial motivation for this podcast the fact that there are so many tools and some of them might seem redundant and it's confusing like where do I start what do I use like gulp or webpack and things like that that's like a much more romantic view of it Um, (laughs) so it really just started because me and Chris we had these discussions all the time about tech like technology like languages decisions we had really good banter and just discussion 
And so we decided to kind of record that. And it all started with this really like grassroots movement called IBM Radio that started like in our design studio. And we were the first talk show, quote unquote, on it. And then we decided to open source the talk show, turn into a podcast from day one and just share it. And it's kind of continued ever since there that like no one listened to it. Okay. No one listened to it for the first year and a half. And now people listen to it. Now we have sponsors. It's cool how it's changed. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And you're even doing singing. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Well, we were supposed to have an opening song by one of our friends, and then they didn't make it in time for the first episode. So, you know, we put it off until the second episode. We were waiting for the song. Never happened. So by the third episode, I was like, whatever, I'll just sing all the intro songs. It's fine. And now people love it. That's like something I look forward to. Yeah, I totally didn't expect that. I'm like, oh, this is... So cool. Cool is one word for it that I wouldn't use to describe. Well, you have guts to do it. That's what I'm (laughs) trying to say. I'm just shameless. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. And by doing this podcast, what are some of the things you have learned from the tools landscape as a whole? Oh, I've learned so much from Chris. He's one of the smartest people I know. To teach something, this is also why I like speaking. To teach something, you have to really understand that thing or it'll make you understand it better. Like teaching means that you have to understand it better so you could share it with someone. So um, through some of the research for this podcast, it's kept me active in this tech world. It's made me think about all the variety of things that we have out there and the technologies that we have out there. We have guests on the show now. I feel like I've learned a lot from it, from doing it. And that's a really good reason to continue doing it alone. And now we're building things for the podcast. Like I love this excuse to do that. And it can also make you notice areas of improvement. Maybe you're like, why aren't these tools merged into one and some interesting product can come out of this that show, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think one part where we're still working on it as a design and dev community, as design tooling, like no one's solved that still. Yeah. It's still like a weird... There's no good tools for that yet, I don't think. Well, Yuna, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great.